Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman. No music this week. It won't be advertisements that break up the conversation that's about to begin in a moment. So let me thank Squarespace and ZipRecruiter for getting behind me from the very start and allowing me to bring a conversation like this to you. You're about to enter the mind of a man I look upon as sort of a superhero. He's also the same man who, almost 18 years ago, tried to commit suicide by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. That means you're about to enter the mind of a man who is one of a handful of people to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge and not only survive, but who's able to walk and run. But that's only the beginning. You're also about to meet a man who has fought to make sure that soon nobody, and that means nobody, will ever be able to commit suicide by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. A barrier to stop anybody who tries will be erected because of this man's journey and commitment. But our conversation goes way deeper than that. This man is proof that you can come back and triumph over almost any difficult situation you find yourself in. Please meet Kevin Hines. Can you take me back to the moment uh, leading up to the jump? I could, Cal. I could. But would you mind if we started from the beginning? Sure. The day I was born. Because in order to understand how I got to the bridge, we have to understand what happened to me that led to my mental unraveling in the first place. Okay, let's go. Cal, I was born on 6th Street in a crack motel to biological parents, Marcia Silvera and Martino Ferales. Martino was half Mexican, half Italian. I always say they're the best parts of me and Marcia hailed from James Bond Island, Jamaica. They met in San Francisco in the 1970s. They fell madly in love. They had two children, me and my brother. Uh, my name wasn't always Kevin Hines. That's my adopted white name. My biological name is Giovanni Gabriel Prasad Terales. Somehow my brother's name is just George Ash, which I don't understand. Uh, but, but my birth parents, Cal, they had, they had a great many things going against them. They had substance use disorder to the 10th degree, hardcore drugs and alcohol, and they had no way to take care of two infants. They would leave us unattended in seedy motels over concrete slab floors on a box spring for a mattress to go do score or sell drugs. My mother was a prostitute. And one day, one seedy motel clerk said, no more, enough of hearing these two children screaming and crying all day long, alone, on a bed that they could fall on the concrete and die from, next to dangerous drug paraphernalia on that bed that was sharp metal objects that could have killed them. The court documents, Cal, when they found us, read, the children lie there, barely clothed, not even a diaper, screaming and crying, not to be neglected in their own filth. Police came in, took us, Child Protective Services, into the foster care system. A system, Cal, that is in shambles today and was in shambles back then. This system they call foster care. They don't call it that anymore in San Francisco. They call it transitional living system because foster and care have become two very bad words in San Francisco for all the parents who abuse their foster children and neglect them. George Ash and I bounced around from home to home. We landed in the home of Peter and Deborah Muller. I, I, I landed in the home of Peter and Deborah Muller. We were separated. He died. We both got bronchitis. George Ash died. They said he looked exactly like me with blonde curly hair. That is where my life began, in the slums of San Francisco. But unlike my poor brother, Cal, I got lucky. I got real lucky. I landed in a nice foster care home where Debbie Hines walked in 
and made me her son. And to understand why I went to the Golden Gate Bridge, you have to understand that first part. Because it led to me developing a severe detachment disorder at nine months of age and serious abandonment issues. My friend, every time I, I, I have someone in my life die, I feel like they're leaving me on purpose. You feel like they're leaving you on purpose. I've had this void in my heart since I, was, since I can remember. And when people I love die, it is overwhelming. Even though you know you're, you feel that way, you, your mind can't overcome your knowledge. Right. I, I can live with it. I can accept it. I hate it. So you just feel whoever you're with is going to abandon you yes. in some way? all day, every day. I've gone to a lot of therapy for that. I've worked hard in therapy to balance it, but that's still how I feel. Well, what happens? Because you mentioned this lucky day where Debbie Hines sees you. And chose me. And chooses you and takes you into her home where you got the... Drill Sergeant, who was never in the military. He was amazing though, Pat Hines, and still, you know, he best father any kid could ever have. He was just tough, you know? Uh, and, and, and you have to you have to see the juxtaposition there. They, they chose me, right? Um, yet later in life, my mother abandoned me, my adopted mom. And by abandoned, I mean, she doesn't really talk to me. I call her, she doesn't call back. When she calls back, um, she tells me I'm not the son she had. I'm not the son she knew before I jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge, Cal. I'm different. To her. I accept that. I understand that. She says very few times when I say I love you, she, says it, she, she very rarely says it back. And that's been going on for 20 years. Cal, I've never told anyone that publicly. I'm telling you because I, I trust you. I believe in this platform and I believe that we should be honest about our pain. In this book, I portray my mom and dad as the angels and saviors they were. They could have had natural born children. They took in three kids from three separate families into one home that it was a melting pot. My brother's black, I'm mixed, my sister's white. I'm telling you, people would stare at us like we were a circus act. They gave us a future, they gave us hope, they gave us life. They saved us. But no human being is perfect, everybody has flaws, and they're still just people. And my father, as pragmatic and pessimistic and stone-faced as he was growing up, um, he's, no one's ever loved me any more than Pat Hines. Or given me more fire and fuel to do good things than Pat Hines, besides Margaret Hines, my wife. And my mother, when, when I was young, she was the most beautiful, uplifting, kind mom, and the most optimistic woman you'd ever meet. Her glass was never half empty, it was never half full, it was toppling over all the time. When things really went sideways in life and I screwed up or I had a bad day at school as a kid, I'd come home and she would say, oh honey, que sera, sera. What will be, will be. You know, I'd lose a little league game, the kids would blame it on, on me, say it's my fault, it's a kid hitter. She would say, que sera, sera. She would sing songs to us every day growing up. She, she, she would smile from ear to ear most days, all day, and she would be happy. Did this help to heal you or were... Knowing that my parents who took me in and chose me, who gave me a second chance at life, loved me unconditionally, even though some, one of them can't say it, that's enough for me today, you know? And, 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 and growing up, my mom and I were thick as thieves. And then I hit 17, had a complete and total mental breakdown, lost my mind. Cal, I'll never forget. 
I'll never forget when my mom picked me up from my theater show that I left in the middle of the performance live in front of 1,200 people in the audience, leaving the director to play my role when he was drunk and beyond reproach. He, he was a primary alcoholic. What was the role? The role was Gatch in the show, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. I had, I had been in plays since, since freshman year and musicals since freshman year. I'm in this show. I'm playing Gatch, this businessman who is a philandering. He's a total jerk, messing with all the secretaries in the office, sexually harassing everybody in the show. And that's the character of Gatch. And I'm wearing my dad's old suit and tie that they had hemmed to fit me. And I'm falling apart at the seams because I couldn't reconcile the pain my angry father had bestowed upon me in his verbalization of that pain. He never hit me, he never would, but he would v verbally hurt me. Not on purpose, because he was a, a he man. He was just tough. He was a tough sunset Irishman who played 20 years of hockey with no mask as the goalie. He Got was it. a bruiser growing up. He had a very rough childhood. His parents died of primary alcoholism, cirrhosis, liver failure, very young. He was left with dollars in his pocket to go make his way in the world. Everybody he ever came into contact stopped him and said, you can't do what you want to do. He earned everything the hard way and would become one of the greatest bankers in the history of San Francisco of his time. He built half the buildings downtown and financed the oil rigs offshore and financed companies to grow massively large. And here he is. He's got a son now who is highly insecure because... How could you not be? I had started to see things that didn't exist to anyone but me. I had started to hear voices that weren't in anybody else's earshot. I started to hear things like, Kevin, you have to die. You are a worthless person. You do not have any value. And these are a third party voice in my head that doctors later would say were developed because of infant trauma. And that's why I told you that first story. You see, Cal, everything anybody has ever said to us negatively, scientifically, we backbrain it. It stays in a pocket memory in your brain. And whenever you're in pain, you remember it. And you think about it. And it re-hurts you all over again. And I had been a kid who, had, in grade school, because I didn't look like the other Irish-Italian kids, because I was mixed with black and Jamaican and Portuguese, and all these white kids would make fun of me and call me names. They would pull my ears to the side and say, whistle, little N-word, whistle. They would come up behind me, put their hands behind my hands, then punch me in the gut so no one could see the bruises. They would lift me up and put me in garbage cans. Cal, the eighth graders, I was in second grade. Why? Because they were bigots. They were prejudiced bigots whose fathers were a part of the SDI, Sunset District Irish, an old gang that's been in trouble with the FBI for years. An Irish-Italian gang that takes on anybody who doesn't look like them. All of their sons went to my school. And every day they called me Little Ren Edward. Every day, because of my red hair and my dark skin, my tan skin. And um, that shapes you. That shapes you, wow. you know? So you, like somebody would have thought when Debbie walks in and rescues you that you were safe. Mm. But oddly enough, you were just moved to another place that was going to create havoc in your life. Well, let me be clear. Pat and Debbie Hines, for my childhood, I was safe. They gave me everything they had, all of their unconditional love, introduced me to my new extended family that loved us dearly and without reproach and cared for us deeply and gave us the world. But they were also in pain 
Patton Debbie Hines for various reasons. And as I got older and mentally unraveled, it, it nearly destroyed them. And their relationship with me changed. Well, what, what happened when you hit 17? I hit 17 and I started to, on the stage, of, that's why the, the, the show, How to Succeed, I'm on that stage, stage right, my left, looking out at 1,200 people, not one seat was open. They said that John Fennell, the theater director, would make professional shows out of high school kids. They said that NYU scouts would come to the shows to pick someone to go to their school. That actually happened. And John would sit in the very back row in the very back seat in the left-hand side, drinking his favorite whiskey that all the parents would give him. John Fennell would be my hero, my mentor, my favorite teacher, and more importantly, my friend. He would be the first person of seven people I would lose to suicide. And his family would lose to suicide because of his substance use disorder. And so, so I'm on that stage and I have this mental breakdown. I had been falling apart. I had been crumbling. My mother noticed something was terribly wrong. I had been acting out at school. I threatened a kid's life at school. They sent me to the dean. She had to come pick me up. It was a mess. But that show was that night. So I go to the show because I, I, I convinced my mom I have to go to the show. It's opening night. I have to play the role. I go on that stage and I'm freaking out in my father's old suit for all that he represented. Not in a negative way, but it, I felt awkward. And I start to look out in this crowd. And I started to believe that every single one of the people in the 1,200 person crowd were there to kill me. Something, Cal, that has followed me until today. Was that the first time you had that feeling? Yes. Yes, extreme paranoia the first time. I had been unraveling mentally, trying to, and not understanding what was going on or that I, I didn't even know how manic I was, how unwell I was. But at the stage in front of these people, I just, I believed they were coming to end me. And like at any point, they were gonna rush the stage and all just beat me to death. And I ran off stage in the middle of the show before intermission. I ran to the lobby. John hopped up, met me in the lobby. He sits me down in the theater treasurer's chair. I was the theater treasurer, the kid with no conceptual math skills. And I sit down and he says, Heinz, can you please finish the performance? It's not even intermission yet. What are you doing? And I just babbled incoherent nonsense for the next 10 minutes. I couldn't make out three words in a row that made sense. He called my mom. And that's what I mean. When I saw her look into my eyes, I could see that she could see the depth of insanity brewing behind them. And she never looked at me again the same. Wow. It's hard for me to even contemplate that experience hmm. from her level or your level. I, I can just try and intellectually understand it. And so where do things go from that performance? Well, from that performance, uh, I would live with my mom until I was 18. On my 18th birthday, she kicked me out in the cold. Uh, my dad picked me up. My clothes were on the porch. She would count down the days until my 18th birthday. Kevin, you have 167 days until you're out of the house. Okay, Mom. Kevin, you have 165 days until you're out of the house. Got it, Mom. Kevin, I know how many days I have, Mom. Were you, were you, you know? doing anything? Oh, to... no, I don't blame her at all. I was out of control. What were you doing? I was punching holes in every drywall. I was screaming at her, calling her names. I was okay. having a complete mental breakdown. I, there is not a lick of blame to be laid on Debbie Hines for why she kicked me out of her house. She should have kicked me out of her house. I deserved it. She was terrified to live with me. Okay. She, I'm bigger than her. She was terrified. I played football, a high school champion wrestler. She was terrified. 
I totally understand that. And she called my father and he picks me up and we go to my house, or his house. And, you know, what I remember about that night is, uh, is how sensitive he was that night. How we sat in the living room and he just expressed how much he loved me and that he didn't want me to unravel and that he didn't know what to do. He's a banker, not a psychologist. And living with my dad would become increasingly uh, difficult because we're such very different people. I'm a sensitive to the core, crying baby when it comes to things that move me. And he is this tough sunset Irishman who's, this, who's got a thick wall around him that nobody can break. And we would just go at it, not tooth and nail every day, just screaming matches every day, screaming. And he would sit me down and yell at me for 45 minutes to two what hours. What would the arguments be about? The arguments were about my lack of ability to commit to a life skill. Kevin, you need to get into this school. You need to go to this school. You need to get that good job. You need to succeed, Kevin, at all right. costs. You need to succeed. Kevin, when I was your age, I had $7 to my pocket and I had to go to school and I had to, and, and you know, when I went to USF, the Jesuits paid for my schooling because I couldn't afford it. I had my first full-time job at 11. What are you doing with your life? I got it. You're the most disappointing child I have. You know, that kind of attitude. And, you know, to be fair to my dad, he didn't know scientifically that stayed in my brain and never left you know he didn't know how much his words hurt me because words and his dad used to beat him you know he, he didn't know he never hit me once he was just a tough guy okay it's it's must be hard for anybody who takes you in even with the deepest feelings to understand what it was like for you as that kid on the bed to, to this day my, my parents don't um recognize the viciousness of the bullying that occurred to me when I was a kid. They really think I have exaggerated it. Cal, I haven't. Those kids, they rip me apart every day. Every day. And this is 13, 13 14, 14, those this years. This is from second grade until eighth grade. Then I went into a high school, the high school my father went to, because I only wanted to go to the high school he went to. I didn't want to try anywhere else. And I get in, and I'm this 5'2", buck 10 kid, who is tiny, and the eighth graders, or pardon me, the, the seniors, who were in my Spanish class, by the way, I'll never forget these two gentlemen, would punch me and hit me and mess with me every day, and they would pick me up, turn me upside down, and place me in a trash can every freshman Friday. <sighs> yeah. I'm not complaining, that's how it shaped yeah, me Well, you're just person. explaining what happened, right? It shaped right? me as a person, and it made me so empathetic to other people's pain. So you could understand that somebody would try to hurt you because somebody was always trying to hurt you. Somebody was always trying to hurt me. Cal, I've always said uh, that I feel like I've been in pain since the day I was born. But I grew up, Cal. I went through what I went through. I jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. I survived one of 36 people to survive that fall. Leah, let's kind of slowly sure. get there. You bet, you bet. It's funny because I, I apologize now hmm. for trying to jump right in at the start. And the only reason... I think I did that because we, we've been talking. Yeah. And yeah. so I, I have an un understanding. And if 
I had just met you, I probably never would have jumped in with that question. Mm. It's, it's the question that I can ask only after like the third time that we've gotten to know each other. Yeah. But just lead me up to that day in September where you go to the Golden Gate Bridge. So in September, so it was, it was September 25th when I jumped, but leading up to that day, uh, if I can remember correctly, I, I was having a, a, an episodic breakdown. Okay, so an episode of bipolar disorder. I'm seeing things and hearing things every day now, but I'm not telling anybody. I'm seeing death himself hover through my window every single night, as you, as you might imagine, like from a movie. Like death himself with his cloak and his hood, and he would, he would have a staff, like a scythe, Right. His right bony arm. Like you would see in, in like Lord, Lord of the Rings. And he would reach out his other hand, bony hand from his cloak, turn it upside down, and his eyes would light to fire in his skull face, and he would say, come home with me. Monday through Monday, Cal. Monday through Monday. Every time I went into my room and tried to sleep, that's what I saw. That's what I heard. But do you think I told my dad that in the morning? No. Was there any outlet, like a therapist, anybody at that time that you could talk to? I was seeing a psychiatrist who was also administering therapy. His name was Dr. J. Kevin Rist. I always joked, I think my mom picked him because his name is J. Kevin and my name is J. Kevin, which is not how you pick a psychiatrist. <laughs> uh, but he was, he was touted as one of the best in the field in San Francisco. He would even call himself that every session. Kevin, I'm one of the best in the field, uh, you should know. You know, very, very humble. Uh, and You kept your sense of humor no, through I, all you this. You bet I did, you bet I did. And, 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 and he, would, he would say after every session, and Kevin, how does that make you feel like some kind of 1980 sitcom or something? And I would get very angry. And, and the first thing he told me was that he thought I had major depression because when I entered his office in the first day, I was majorly depressed. He put me on majorly depressive medications. Cal, this is very common. I skyrocketed into a manic episode. He knew I had bipolar disorder. Subsequently diagnosed three times with bipolar disorder type one with psychotic features, which people only, a lot of people only think is for schizophrenia. But now I'm seeing and hearing things every day that nobody else can. I'm hearing voices in my head, a man's voice or men's voices in my head that are yelling at me that I have to die. A man's voice I've never recognized as anybody I've ever known. In my head, most likely from infant trauma. And it was triggered. I have epilepsy, I have a seizure disorder. I was on seizure disorder medication before I hit 17 and had my first mental breakdown. When they took me off that medication, I had my first mental breakdown. Why? Because that very same medication would later be utilized as a mood stabilizer and antidepressant for bipolar disorder. The medication I was on for my brain seizures was hindering the bipolar from existing. They take me off the meds abruptly, I erupt. So then I get to 17, 18 to 19 and I get to September 24th of the year 2000. And I've already written a note to my mom and my dad and my brother and my sister and my best friend, Jake Lewis at the time. I said, mom, I love you, but you're not always right. Dad, I love you, but stop bringing the office home. This isn't work. I said to my little brother, he wanted nothing more in this world to be the greatest DJ on the West Coast. I said, you've got this, you'd be a household name. I said to my sister who wanted to make films, go get it. I said to my best friend, Jake Lewis, you'll find another best friend. As if that's how that works. I said to my girlfriend, slash ex-girlfriend, it's debatable, depending on who you ask. I said, uh, it's not you, it's me. I put that note in my shoulder bag, put that shoulder bag by the door. My father was in his room. At six in the morning, I entered his room. I startled him awake. My dad wears a CPAP machine, you know, breathing apparatus, making out snore. He was still snoring, sounding like Darth Vader uh, with the breathing mask. And I startled him awake. He popped up and he said, Kevin, what's wrong? 
Now, he had known I was unwell. He had known I was unraveling yet again. I said, nothing, Dad. I just wanted to tell you that I love you. I thought it was for the very last time. He says, Kevin, I love you too. But it is six in the morning, and I don't have to be at work until nine. Can you go back to bed? Sure, Dad, no problem. He puts back on his breathing mask. He's out like a light. I walked around to the other side of the bed, sat on the carpeted floor, and rocked my body back and forth in tears, begging myself to tell the one man who loved me the most in the whole world the truth. But I couldn't, because the voices in my head right then said, be quiet, Kevin. You have to die, Kevin. Be quiet. And I did. I listened. And when people hear that, I tell them, you've got to stop listening to the negative voice in your head. We all have the inner critical voice, every one of us who's ever been said anything negative to, we have an inner critical voice, it's built in. You have to reverse it to survive. But I didn't know that back then, Cal. You're a kid. I just knew the pain was You're too great to bear. It's too great to bear, Cal. I always ask people, what's the one thing you wanna do when you find yourself in excruciating physical pain? What do you want that pain to do? Go away. Stop. You want it to stop at any means necessary. And for me, as I sat there at my desk, contemplating my end, I found this idea of the Golden Gate Bridge. I thought you died on impact. It was ease of access to lethal means that led me to that Golden Gate. Had you heard of people jumping off the bridge? Never, no. no. Didn't study it? I knew didn't... it existed. I didn't know at what level. I didn't know that at that year, 43 people had already died. I didn't know that uh, one person now dies there every seven to 10 days. I didn't know that. It has for the last 40 years. Um, I didn't know any of it. I just knew it was there. It was a short rail. And I thought I would die on impact and be free from the pain. What I didn't realize, Cal, is that the voices in my head were lying. I wasn't useless. I wasn't a burden. I wasn't less than. I was a good kid in a world of hurt. And I didn't have the recognition, the understanding that I had so many people who loved me dearly. I believed, Cal, that they wanted me dead. I believed that they wanted me gone. All lies my brain, my malfunctioning brain told me. All lies. For all of their flaws, Pat and Debbie Hines and my entire extended family love me unconditionally. They're also just people in pain. We all are. We've all been through something. And if we're old enough, we're going to go through something. And so what's the lead up to you heading over to the Golden Gate Bridge? Mm -hmm. My father enters my room at 7 a.m. I've been back in my room since 6.30. He says, Kevin, I'm very worried about you. I don't know what to do. Why don't you come to work with me today? Oh, so he sensed. He, he knew. He sensed something. Right. He didn't sense suicide. He just knew I needed to be close to him. Right. He was spot on. He was so close, wow. Cal. He was so close. Had my father said, and this is no fault of his own, had my father said, Kevin, are you suicidal? I would have broken into tears and had to have told him. Had to have. But he, instead he said, why don't you come to work with me today? He said in a different way. In a different way. Yeah. But in, a soft in, in, way. A soft in a way, in a soft, soft way, in a soft and kind way, yes. yes yeah. Just be with me today, Kevin, wow. so I can protect you. That was what he was doing. He was doing what he was supposed to do, but he didn't, he didn't quite connect that, that. He knew I was in danger, but certainly not of my own hands to suicide. And so 
for 15 minutes. He's convincing me I have to come to work with him. And I'm lying for 15 minutes because the voice is going, Kevin, don't let him find out. Don't let him find out, Kevin. You have to die, Kevin. And so I'm, I'm, I'm here having this inner dialogue looking at my dad trying to save me. And I say, Dad, I have a math test today. My math book was on my desk. All my books were on my desk. The bag only had the note in it. I said, Dad, I have a math test today. I hate math with a fiery passion and always have. Oh, that would have been a sign, right? Like, can't wait for a math test, you know? And so he goes, okay, Kevin, I'll tell you what. I will take you to City College. If you take the bus home tonight, I'll see you home at six. Perfect, Dad. I'll see you at six. Knowing full well, I would never come home. Or at least thinking I would be going home in another way. You know? You know, and, and that's funny, Cal. I've never told anybody this because I haven't had time or, or thought about it really until right now. Up to this point, I kept telling my friends, I just want to go home. I just want to go home. They said, Kevin, we're in your house. What are you talking about? No, you don't understand. I just need to go home. I need to go home. I'm at heaven. I wanted to be free from this physical world because it was crushing me. What happens next? You leave the house? I leave the house. My dad drops me off at City College. He turns to me and he says one of his mantras. Kevin, I love you. Be careful. I kissed him on the cheek as I had done since I was a tiny kid. Like you would see someone, like a son do to Robert De Niro in any one of his many movies, you know? And I stepped out of the car with my right foot and I stood up. And that's when a tear rolled down my cheek, off my chin, onto my right lug's boot, onto the middle shoelace. Cal, I will never forget that moment as long as I live. It's imprinted in my brain. I can see it past your face right now. I can see my father driving away on that very street. And as he drives away, and as he disappears into the next street to the left, I say to myself, that's the last time I'll ever see anybody I love and the last time anybody I love will ever see me and I was content, Cal, to die. I walked on campus, I dropped all of my classes except one, I kept my English class. I dropped nine and a half 12 half units in one day. The, th the counselor who dropped my classes online neglected to tell me that by dropping nine and a half units of 12 and a half, you immediately relinqu relinquish your medical coverage from the wellness program at the school the only coverage I had at the time. Cal, I jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. I shattered my back in three vertebrae. Oh, well, let's yeah, slow sorry, it down, sorry, let's sorry. slow it down. Yeah, you bet, my bad. So what's going through your mind when you're going to school to mm -hmm. basically drop out? Oh. Because like, here, if you're checking out, why do you need a dropout? Cal, this is more common than you can ever know. Really? making end plans. I went to City College to drop my courses in the mindset, I better drop all my courses, boy, so mom and dad don't have to trek all the way to City College after I die to do it for me. Because wouldn't that be a hassle for them? They'd be so upset, Cal, but they wouldn't be devastated for the rest of their lives that their eldest son died by his hands. Oh, man. When we think of suicide, we are separated from the true reality. 
the true reality. Now, you may live in a life where you have abusive parents, physically abusive parents. You may live in a life where you're in a foreign country that's a third world country and your life is, is really a life of a slave. You may live in a life where these things can occur. But for me, Cal, I was in a place where uh, I was in a good place physically with family who loved me, but I hated myself. I self-loathed enough to hear those inner critical voices and then become a manifestation of a, a, a real voice telling me I had to die and that I was a terrible person. None of which are true, but I believed it because of my psychosis. Which you try to disprove by going to the college to do right. something nice. Right, go to the college, drop the courses so mom and dad don't have to, right. and then they won't be upset when I die. But they won't be upset when I die, Cal. Ridiculous, ludicrous, delusional, irrational. And that is the nature of suicide, Cal. It is by far and large irrational and illogical. But because your brain tells you when you're sick, you believe it to be fact. I never wanted to die. I never wanted to die. I believed I had to die. So what happens after you leave school and you don't know that you no longer have health insurance, yep. but you've just basically checked out of school? What's your next step? I got on a muni train. It's called the K-Line. I got on that muni train. I sat in a cornered area of the train next to reflective glass. I looked at the man in those, that glass as I looked in the mirror for months as I looked in the mirror for months prior, telling myself how much I hated myself, hearing the voices, having conversations with myself in the mirror as if it was a different person. And that's what happened on that bus. I looked in that reflection and silently in my head, the voice said, no turning back, you have to die, you are worthless. I got a tra paper transfer from that, that train. I got onto the next bus that would take me out to the Golden Gate. I sat in the very back row in the middle seat crying like a baby, just waterfalls, mucus, everything. A hundred people boarded that bus, Cal, or so. I sat in the very back row in the middle seat, looking upon all of them, and here I am crying. And then, Cal, I begin to scream aloud at the voices in my head. Leave me alone! I don't want to die! I'm a good person! Why do you hate me so much? What did I ever do to you? And now, Cal, if they weren't before, 100 people are looking right at me and saying nothing. But all I wanted, Cal, was for one person to see me, to see my pain, and to say something. I had made a pact with myself on that bus, which is very, very common for suicidal people. It's instinctual. If one person says or does this, I will. If one person says or does that, I won't die today. I said, if one person says, are you okay? Is something wrong? Or can I help you? I'll tell them everything and beg them to save me. And as I cried like a baby, this guy right next to me said to the fellow next to him, while pointing at me with his thumb, with a smirk on his face, what the hell is wrong with that kid? Oh, man. Yeah. And I've always said, Cal, that that attitude, that innate human ability to see someone potentially in the greatest pain they've ever experienced and feel nothing for them but fear of them and apathy toward them is what's breaking down our society. We are one thing, Cal, if we are nothing else. In my opinion, we are supposed to be our brothers and sisters keepers. When someone's in pain and on the ground, you lift them up and you hold them tight. When someone is suicidal, you wrap your arms around them and you don't let them go. 
When someone is truly hurting, you offer them hope at the end of their constricted tunnel vision. Dr. Thomas Joyner, one of the greatest suicidologists of this or any, any time, wrote a book, Why People Die by Suicide. In that book, he chronicled the life of a man in his 40s who had gone to the Golden Gate Bridge. He had written in his note, if one person smiles at me today, I won't jump. May he rest in peace, Cal. He died for the lack of one smile. At every speech I do, I tell that story, and I say, let's honor that man. Turn to the person to the left or right of you and give him the biggest, whitest tea smile you can right now. It, takes, it brings in levity from a tough story. Everybody starts to laugh and smile. Then I stare at the people who aren't smiling. I say, I can see you. I'm looking right at you. You better smile, damn it. And they smirk or they smile. No, everybody's or, they, or they barely smile. One of the other things I've started to do is that when people are in, when we're talking about the story of pain, I take a break and I go, okay, everybody. All right. For everyone in the room who is comfortable, please stand. Or physically capable, please stand. Everyone stands. And I say, okay, if you're comfortable, turn to, the, turn to a person you don't know right now and give them a bear hug. And then I say, 23 seconds, a 23-second hug releases oxytocin in the brain that makes people feel better. And then I say, but you don't all have to give each other 23-second hugs. You don't know each other. Relax. You know, and if you're not comfortable, don't sit down. Keep sitting down. But you will be surprised, Cal, at how many people stand there and count their 23 seconds. Because they want to feel better, Cal. We all do. I just heard a fact the other day, and I don't want to slow down the story but that one in four Americans do not have friends. So there's nowhere for them to go to. Oh, cow. One in four people also have a diagnosed mental illness. And the, four, the one in four who don't have friends, uh, I just interviewed a young Mexican man a couple days ago for my vlog, it hasn't gone out yet, and I just saw this young man, he was sitting there, with a, um, a Transformers shirt on at Comic-Con. He was sitting there in the Starbucks with, and I was with my colleague. And I turned and I just saw something in his eyes. I do this all the time. And I said, hey, would you mind sharing your story with me? I think you have one. And he goes, what do you mean? And he had a Mexican accent. I said, I think you, you, you've been in pain, huh? And he goes, yeah, man, what, what are you talking about? I said, I jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge in the year 2000 because of pain, brain pain. And I, I, I get the sense that you've been through something. Would you mind telling me your story on camera? And he said, oh, no. I said, listen, I'm Mexican. You're Mexican. This is going to help a Mexican kid who doesn't know how to talk about something like this. If you tell me about your pain, this is going to help us and people like us find hope. And he goes, all right. I got a story. And he proceeds to tell me how when he was a certain age, 14, I think, and he had no one and nothing, and he'd immigrated from Mexico, and his family wasn't helping him, or they were separated. You know, you know about that. Right. Uh, he said that he tried to hang himself, and something snapped when the door handle came off, it hit him straight in the head, and he said, "What am I doing? If nobody else will be there for me, I'm gonna forever be here for myself, because I wasn't meant to die this way." And he looked at me and he said to me on the camera, he said. If you can't find anybody who loves you, that shouldn't stop you from staying alive. You've got to find a way to love yourself. And then he said, Kevin, I found a way to love myself through and through because I practiced self-love and self-care. In his own words. Right. But this was after you really needed to hear that, correct? Yeah. Yeah, right. 
Fair enough. So what happens as you approach the bridge? The bus gets to the Golden Gate Bridge parking lot. 100 people deboard. I'm the last person on it, hoping that the driver will see my pain. He turns, stands, and says, Come on, kid, get off the bus. I got to go. All right. I walk right up to him. I look him in his eyes, water flowing from mine. He motions for me to get off the bus. Stepping down those two steps, Cal, was, it felt like a marathon. My feet were heavy. My heart was palpitating. My eyes were red with tears. I walked across the walkway all the way to the entirety of the bridge and back several times. For 40 minutes, I paced the bridge. Bikers, joggers, tourists, runners, police officers searching for suicidal people. They went by me twice. To be fair, you know, those officers hadn't been trained in prevention. They are, they are today. They save almost 200 lives a year, okay? But they didn't see my pain. I stood at the bridge crying over the, over the, over the railway, leaning over like this, crying like a baby. A woman from my left approaches me. I'll never forget this cow. She, she had blonde curly hair. And I always say sunglasses on that in the speech you ladies love to wear that don't fit your face. And she approaches with a smile and I really believed, I believed she was coming to save me. I remember thinking, looking at her, smiling at me and thinking, I don't have to do this. I don't have to die today. I don't have to die today. And then she takes out a digital camera and says, will you take my picture? And then she stands right in front of me where I'm going to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge and she poses for five minutes. Oh. I almost needed a break from the story. Yeah. If you want to take one, we can take one. No, 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 no. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm good now. All right. Uh, and, and so what happens then? Well, she, she posed for five minutes for five pictures. And I was so angry that she couldn't see my pain. But then I thought later on... But what was part of you thinking, hold it, she's stopping me. She's, no, I couldn't see it. You couldn't see it. I only saw it later, in hindsight, that she was trying to show me something beautiful. I think she actually did see my pain. And I think the language barrier was a struggle. She was Eastern European. I think she wanted to have me see something beautiful. And she was a beautiful woman. But I didn't see that she was trying to give me time. Now listen to this. If she hadn't given me those five minutes, I would not have lived from my attempt. I'll get to that in a minute. So she walks away with her camera and says, thank you. It sounds a little like your dad, the way he spoke to you. Mm. Uh, understanding something was wrong, but not stopping to really allow you to mm. release everything. Yeah. She walks away and I said to myself, absolutely nobody cares. Then the voice in my head says, jump now. And I did. At that, At that very, very moment, moment, I walked back toward the traffic line, I sprinted forward and I catapulted myself over the rail. In the absolute millisecond that my hands left the rail and I could not reach back, instant regret from my actions and the 110% recognition that I just made the greatest mistake of my life, and it was too late. Over 2,000 people have died at the Golden Gate Bridge. 
no matter if the bridge director who runs and owns it tells you it's 1700 that's a blatant lie from the 1970s. Over 2,000, potentially 3,000 or higher, have died off the Golden Gate Bridge. For all the bodies washed away to sea and ever be found, all the bodies by eaten by fish to the bone. I fell 220 feet, 25 stories at 75 miles an hour in four seconds, and I prayed on the way down. You had time to pray. You hear people talk about the quick seconds before they sense they're going to die and are able to see their life pass in front of them. Did you have that? I didn't see my life. I was falling and the wind felt like shards of glass piercing my skin. It was an overcast day, so all the fog was hitting me hard. And I remember in those four seconds of that fall, I said, what have I just done? I don't want to die. God, please save me. And then I hit the water. Now, how did you hit the water? That, Cal, I cannot tell you. Because if I tell you that, people will attempt that way to try to fall at that, at that to try to fall in the way that they will survive or they will try to fall in the way that they won't survive. Oh, so you, you can't say it because you I don't want anybody, no, anybody even contemplate. I don't want them giving these ideas. But there is a certain there way. There is a certain way. The, there is one way 36 people have survived that fall. It is nobody's business because it's dangerous. It gives people ideas. So we don't want to do that. Uh, we want people to find recovery, hope, and healing from their pain. We want them to stay here, and we don't want them to attempt like I did. It was still the worst action I'd ever taken and a great mistake, and I still regret it. It was both the worst day of my life, and because of some certain things that saved me that day, it was the best day of my life. So you hit the water. Yeah. Are you conscious? Completely. What happens? What is going through your mind? A vacuum sucks you under 70 feet. You're, you're, you're emotionally tumbling left and right, up and down. You don't know which way is up or down. I'm frantically opening my eyes, realizing I lived, I'm drowning. I frantically move in any direction. I started going down. My ears begin to pop and ring. My eyes begin to bulge. I shoot to the surface, only using my arms. My legs have been rendered motionless temporarily. I, upon impact, I shattered my T12, L1, L2 lower vertebrae into shards like glass. I missed severing my spinal cord that day by two millimeters. I swam the fastest I'd ever swam in my life, only using my arms that day. I broke the surface, I bobbed up and down in the water, and I prayed. God, please save me, I don't wanna die, I made a mistake on repeat. How, is the water really cold? Freezing. In 15 minutes, you will develop hypothermia. I was picked up in 12. So, you're at the surface, are you trying to just tread water? Has anybody seen this from above on the bridge? Tens of people saw me go over. I'm in the water, I'm trying to stay afloat. I can't feel my legs. I keep going down, my boots are waterlogged, I keep coming up. Every time I go down, I go down further because I'm tired and having a violent asthma attack. I can't reach my breather in my left hand pocket. I swim to the surface one more time and that's when it happened. Something began to circle beneath me. Faster and faster, and faster. And no longer was I wading in the water to stay afloat. Now I am lying on the water on my back, being kept buoyant by this creature. Thinking to myself, I didn't die jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge, and a shark is going to devour me. But it doesn't bite me. It doesn't bite me, it doesn't bite me, it doesn't bite me. It's only keeping me afloat. I thought, well, this is the nicest shark I've ever met. <laughs> you know? What? I literally right then and there named him Herbert. I don't know why, it just popped into my head. And the Coast Guard boat arrived in 12 minutes. Now, remember what I said about that woman 
giving me those five minutes. That's right. Had she not given me those five minutes, that sea lion would not have been in a place to be where it was to keep me in a float in the first place. So she saved my life. The sea lion saved my life. The Coast Guard saved my life. And then at the hospital. How did the Coast Guard know? Because uh, the people that had seen me jump immediately went to the bridge authority and said, there's someone who just jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge, which is what they always do when that happens. And I would not learn what it was that kept me afloat until a year later. I'm on a television show called Primetime Live with John Quinones. He does that show, What Would You Do? And I say on that show, I thought a shark was beneath me in the water. People who wrote into the show from all over the world went, went online, wrote in. One man's letter stuck out above all the rest. His name was Morgan. He was from Vegas. He said, Kevin, I'm so very glad you're alive. I was standing less than two feet away from you when you jumped. Until this day, no one would ever tell me whether you lived or died. It's haunted me until right now. By the way, Kevin, there was no, there was no shark in the water, but there was a sea lion. And the people above looking down believed it to be keeping your body afloat until the Coast Guard boat arrived behind you. Subsequently, several people went to the Coast Guard office and recounted that exact same uh, story. This creature knew I would die if it did not help me. Coast Guard pulls up. They push me onto a flatboard, put me in a neck brace, strap me in head to toe, start asking questions. They get me to the ambulance. Ambulance gets me to the hospital. You know. Then they ask for an insurance card. (laughs) 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 No, the sad part about that, Cal, is my dad footed the bill. And it was exorbitant, as you can imagine. And 40 years of a career built in finance was almost destroyed. Oh, man. By my one action. I hold guilt for that today. He doesn't hold me accountable. I hold myself accountable. A 45-year career in finance. Gone. In a day. With one action. One consequence. And he was there for you. You bet he was. He he was the first person in the hospital. This is his story. When he... Here's what happened. So, So... the hospital called my father. It's a terrible way that they let him know. They gave him no icebreaker. He was standing in his office and they said, is this Mr. Pat Hines? He said, yes. Your son has just jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. He asked them one question to which he believed as a fourth generation son said San Francisco Irishman that he knew the answer. Is my son alive? Thinking he was being ready to come see a body in the morgue. And she said, yes. He said, I'll be right there. He walked out to his secretary. I think we'll just call her Rachel. And Rachel said, Pat, what's wrong? You look like you've seen a ghost. He said, Rachel, my son has just jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge, and I fear that if I don't have someone driving in the passenger seat of my car, I will go over a cliff. Will you ride with me? Who gets in that car? Rachel got in the car. (laughs) So he could see straight, because he had to protect somebody else. He gets to the hospital. He walks in, he looks at me laying there, broken, battered, mangled, bent, ivies in both arms in a bracing structure. And my father, the pragmatic, pessimistic, stone-faced Pat Hines, who I'd never seen cry in 19 years for any pain in the family, any death in the family, nothing. Hard as a rock, waterfalls flow from his eyes. I looked up at my dad. I took off my mask and I said, Dad, I'm sorry. Just waterfalls. And he said, no, Kevin, I'm sorry. He came over to my left side. And the man who loves me the most in the world 
He said, Kevin, you are going to be okay. I promise. In his softest voice. And I held on to that cow. I held on to it and I never let it go. My dad said I was going to be okay and damn it, I'll be okay. I had a 50-50 chance of living through the night. They went in to do a 10 and a half hour back surgery to replace my back with metal. I have a titanium cylindrical or circular cage of mesh wiring that wrapped around where the vertebrae were, four pins the size of my index finger, and a metal plate to my left side the size of my palm. They took out all the shattered pieces of vertebrae and fused it with the metal. They took out a three inch piece of my 10th rib and did the same. And that's the only reason I get to stand, walk, and run. That's a gift. The doctor who performed my back surgery that day, a 10 and a half hour back surgery, had the scalpel in my belly when I had a violent asthma attack under not enough anesthetic. Sutured me back up, went back to work, put me under deeply, and saved me the ability to walk, stand, and run. I went from a wheelchair to a walker and a back brace to a back brace and a cane in four and a half weeks. What happened to your mind after you'd gone through this transformation of jumping to that was a mistake to landing and being saved and obviously having an appreciation for all this, what, what happens then? Do the voices still appear? I am not recovered. I'm in recovery every day. I have chronic suicidal thoughts regularly. They will never kill me. I found a way to be self-aware with my disease. When I am manic, I usually know it and I talk about it. When I'm depressed, I absolutely know it and I talk about it. When I am having a panic attack, I reach out. When I'm having anxiety or heart palpitations, I tell my wife or my family. When I am hurting and in pain mentally, I am honest about that pain. And when I'm in therapy, I tell the truth. Because it's the only way to, pur to save your life is to purge the pain from your soul. You have to talk about it. For all these people that say they have no one, you need to find someone, uh, to, you know, even, even a crisis counselor at the crisis text line to talk to, you have to talk to somebody so you can survive the pain one day at a time. I, um, I transitioned into, I mean, it wasn't an easy road. It was, it was the next seven years I spent, in the next 11 years, I was in seven psych ward stays. From 2000, when I jumped, 2001, 2002, 2003, 2004, and three psych ward stays. From 2004 to 2009, I had no psych ward stays. I was doing well because I was following a very strict routine of education as to my disease so I could defeat it with reputable proven treatments. Exercise every day so I could feel those endorphins in my brain make me feel better. Eating healthy foods most days so I could feed my gut good food to feed my brain health, and so much more. I started doing those things in my third psych ward stay of seven, and I really, I, I was near diabetic, I was overweight, I lost, I battled up and down with my weight all the time. I, I, I lost the weight, I got healthy, I started eating better, I started really working for my brain health every single day without fail. I took my medications with 100% accuracy, whereas before I would take them one day and not the next seven days, not seven days, or binge drink until blackout this many times while, while on psychotropic drugs, which could have killed me. So I changed everything in my life in that third psych ward stay, and that's where I met the woman of my dreams. My Margaret. And so none of this would, would have happened. You never would have met her mm. if you hadn't jumped off the bridge. The sequence of events that happened in those next four years between 2000 and 2004 set up the rest of my life.
How do you meet the woman of your dreams? Oh God, Cal, that's my favorite story. So I'm in the psych ward. I'm getting better. I'm working really, really hard. And only six people are coming to see me most days. Not the fam- I, a bunch of family I wanted to come didn't come, but my, the core people were coming, they came every time. I'm lucky to have that. But most people in those psych wards have no one to come see them at all. And that's, ter- that's so sad because of the shame that's put on these, these issues. But I'm in that psych ward. And one day I decide, I'm gonna go to the nurse station and I'm gonna have a conversation with my case manager, Jana, from Brooklyn. I said, Jana, when I, um, when I uh, uh, c- can you give me a job? And she goes, what now? I said, you've got me in here doing 10 forms of therapy a day. Give me five forms of therapy and give me something productive to do on the ground so I can work, so I can earn my keep here. And she goes, you wanna volunteer for the psych ward you're staying in? I said, yeah. She said, no, that's highly unethical and probably illegal. That's not going to happen, Kevin. I said, well, can I have a hug? And she said, what? I said, 23 second hugs release oxytocin in the brain to make it feel better. I read it in the magazine my uncle gave me to help me beat mental illness through routine and regimen. And she goes, get away from me. But then the very next day, Jana went on vacation. The new case manager comes in, curly fried hair out to here, salt and pepper, a lay of flowers around her neck that she had made from her garden, a flower in her right ear, and she wore tie-dye shirts every day. She claimed they were different. It was the same shirt. And so I go to her, and she really is a certified hippie. You know, she's from 1970 San Francisco, there's no doubt. And she's seen and done and been through it all. And she's chill, you know, she's really laid back. And so I go to her and I say, give me a job. And she says, that sounds like a lovely idea. What can we have you do? And, and I said, anything. And she goes, let's see. And they should never have left this lady alone at the nurse's station. She was dangerous. She walks back to the corner. She grabs a giant green binder amongst a shelf of 22 giant green binders. She steps forward and she says, I know, you can file these. Patient binders. That is totally illegal. (laughs) She says, do it alphabetically and just don't look at the details. Have you ever heard of HIPAA laws, HIPAA privacy laws? Yeah, yeah. You can't do that. Right. You can't do that. Nonetheless, I filed the paperwork. I did what she asked. I didn't look at most of the details. <laughs> and I get my next job. Clean out the giveaway clothes closet in the clothes closet so that you can, people can have something to wear when they're leaving. We're all wearing hospital gowns, hospital pants, hospital slippers with the grips on the bottom. Not me. Everything in the men's st- section fit me. So I, I come out of the closet one day with a Ralph Lauren double-breasted polo suit and a 70s yellow flared collar like a gangster who owned the place. I walk up to the nurse's station, I grab a notebook, a clipboard, and a pen, and I start doing doodles of Leonardo the Ninja Turtle, you know, the official hospital documents. It's my next job. And that is when, at that very moment during visiting hours, in walks Patrick Hines. And he walks up to the nurse's station, he can't see me because he has, you know, no peripheral vision. And he says to this lady, excuse me, I'd like to see my son Kevin, please. And she goes like this. Mm-hmm. And points at me across the nurse's station. He looks at me, does a double take, and says one of his other mantras, Kevin, what the hell are you doing? I said, Dad, I work here now. And he goes, he said, what twice like little John the rapper. It was ridiculous. He screamed, what twice, looks at this lady and says, get me the manager. And she says, sir, this is not a hotel. Get me the head nurse now. And she was the head nurse and they went at it and they were bickering and fighting and that's it. The whole staff was there. I said, that's it. No more Pat Hines. It was terrible. 
I really hurt his feelings. But I said, no more Pat Hines. They forcibly removed my dad, which you don't do because he's a third degree black belt in judo. That's another story. He went quietly not to make a larger scene. He would come back later to finally go to therapy with me and tell me his story of why he was such a hard ass and that's why he was so hard on me. And that story is devastating. Nonetheless, he helped change and save my life like Uncle Kevin did, his uncle, my great uncle, who came to every psych ward stay every single day until he got sick with pancreatic cancer. Uncle Kevin taught me a lot, my dad's uncle, because he was 30 years drunk and 30 years sober and the 30 years of sobriety, those are the first 30 years of my life. I got to know him in those last 10 years. I would go to every chip date he had at AA to see him get his chip year by year. I was there for his 30th chip before he died. And, and you know, this was the, the thing. Uncle Kevin was just like my dad. They were these tough men that you couldn't break. And they, they were the two people that came every day. And then this is what happened. This is how I met Margaret. One day, in walks a kid on a, in comes a kid on a gurney. In comes this kid on a gurney. He can't walk and he can't talk and he can't move. Catatonic, methamphetamines, and some other drugs. He had been doing illicit drugs since he was 13. But the special thing about this kid was that 15 to 22 people who loved him would come to see him every day without fail. The whole team, the whole family. Spanish, Filipino, American family. They all came. Nobody had that kind of love in psych wards I've been in seven times. Nobody. And I realized that the hospital wasn't helping him. He couldn't help himself, so they were not helping him. They'd wheel him around, but they wouldn't help him. They'd bring him a tray of food every day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They'd take it away full when he wouldn't eat it. it. Made me sick to my stomach. I tried to feed him. It didn't work. I realized it was a plight. It wasn't that easy. It wasn't that simple. So I decided, how can I get this kid to come out of his shell so he can engage in this and start eating again? He's, you know, and in those two weeks, I told him stories, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I sat next across from him at a table in the cafeteria, and I just talked to him, hoping to grab a response, elicit a response. Finally, one day, he starts to move. He goes like this. Jeez, man, you talk too much. Leave me alone. I jumped up and did a happy dance. People were clapping. It's the woman that was always clapping, but she meant it. And I got him talking again. And then he wanted nothing to do with me. <laughs> oh, man. So the very, one of the next few days, I show up to the nurse's station with a pink polo shirt, khaki cargo shorts, and sandals from the giveaway clothes closet right out the box because they fit me. And I'm thinking I worked there, you know? I've got my clipboard, Leonardo's done. You know, my document for the hospital is done. And I, I give myself my next job, the morning and afternoon visiting hour announcements on the PA system. I rhyme them because it's way cooler and more efficient. And I'm rhyming the voice, the visiting hour announcements. And that's when she walks in and taps me on my left shoulder. I turn around, I looked into this woman's almond brown, sexy, cool eyes, and I was done. I remember at that very moment I knew she would be the rest of my life for the rest of my life. And I looked at her and I said to myself, I'm gonna marry this girl. And I quickly said, Kevin, don't tell her that yet. <laughs> she says, excuse me, and for the entire staff, they're all there. Excuse me, like that, do you work here? It's very authoritative, you know, and I said, uh, I looked at all the staff and they looked at me, all like cross-eyed, like what is this little jerk gonna say? And I looked at all of them like, Shh, or we'll talk about the binders. And they, would, they were quiet. So I said, Madam, I am a volunteer. <laughs> and they didn't say anything. And she said, I'm looking for my cousin. His name is. And I said, right this way. 
I put my hand in the small of her back and her elbow, and I kind of glided her there like this. Down the hallways, you know, I got her to the room, but the kid sees me. The kid hates me. He doesn't want to talk to me. I talk too much. I duck out into the hallway. I hear her say, your nursing staff is so nice. And then he yells, that guy? <laughs> really, at the top of his lungs. I don't want to break your microphone. That guy? That guy is a nutball. Don't talk to that guy. And I ran in there, and, I, and, he, and he, oh, he, goes, he goes, that guy jumps off bridges. And I ran in there, and I said, excuse me, it was one. It was one bridge, plural. That's ridiculous. She comes out and goes, why'd you lie to me? I said, Margaret, I didn't lie to you. I do. I am a volunteer here. I just happen to also live here. <laughs> and she laughed. <laughs> anyway, the kid gets out of the hospital for me. I get out and go to a halfway home for the mentally ill. I had to go to a halfway home for the mentally ill, public housing, living off $3 a day, and Social Security. They would give me $3 of it a day. I had to go to that halfway home because none of my family or friends would take me in. They needed me to get well on my own. They had been through too much pain, you know? Right. They'd seen me go up and come down three times, in and out of psych wards. They, were, they couldn't handle it. Nobody. Nobody. I called everybody. Nobody would take me in. And I got it. And I knew I had to grow. I needed to change my life. So I was already doing better mentally. And I get out of there. I go to my first halfway home. Before I left for the halfway home, Margaret comes in one time, one last time. I stopped her at the door of the psych ward. I said, Margaret, um, when I get out of here, could I take you to coffee? And she smiled. Her face twitched. And she said, oh, honey, hell no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but I'm a very consistent person and persistent person, and I think that's the key in mental health and psych wards. And so I end up stealing her number from her cousin's phone, and I go to the halfway home. I do my 30 days probationary period, okay? You follow the rules to a tier, they'll kick you out of there. I'm living off $3 a day. I can get a Tully's coffee in the morning, or I can get half a bagel at Noah's if Pete at Noah's is nice to me. Or I can eat the food at the house that was frozen and terrible, right? Um, and I call Margaret on my day that I get my first weekend off. I call Margaret. This is the conversation. <laughs> Hi, Margaret. Yes, it's Kevin. <laughs> oh, no. She goes, she goes um, Kevin? Kevin Hines? Uh, from the psych ward? <laughs> Oh, no. yeah. And she goes, oh, hi, uh, Kevin. How did you get this number? And I was, I just, I go, oh, you know, anyway, Mark, that's not important. I just wanted to, I wanted to ask you if you would come to dinner to, with me tonight. And she goes, oh, Kevin, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think. And I was like, Margaret, I need this. I just need one date. If it's terrible, you never have to see me again. And then I showed up at her door. <laughs> with a giant ski duffel bag of lots of my things. And she says, well, what is that? I said, Margaret, it's a very funny story. When you leave the halfway home on a Friday, it's Friday, and you go, you, you, you go out past 9, you made reservations for this restaurant at 9 p.m. Here's the thing, you kind of can't go back to the halfway home until Monday. <laughs> no. Yeah, and she goes... For anyone oh. who... Anyone who is just listening to this, after Kevin says that, he just throws his arms out to the I side. I throw my arms out. 
You've got me. I'm here for you, baby. You know, and the whole weekend, <laughs> the whole weekend. And she screamed, Oh, hell no. And I jumped in. I said, Margaret, I will take this bag. I will lay across the street on those stairs as a pillow and go to sleep over there tonight. But we have to go on this date. I came all this way and that hill was a bitch. And she goes, Oh, God, fine. We go to this restaurant. It's called Cafe Sport in San Francisco. It's an old mob hangout. It's a tiny little joint. All right. The tables are the size of the seats of these chairs here, okay? You don't even have the money. You no, got, I, what, $3? I, I, I didn't have the money because the $3 I had, I had saved up for two days to buy a $5 shirt at Old Navy on sale in the clearance rack. I was I was running on fumes, all right? And I, I, had, I had bus fare to get there. That's it. And so I wasn't thinking ahead, clearly. And so we're at the restaurant. We, no, so, we, so we go to the restaurant. There's these tiny chairs, tiny tables. You're elbow to elbow with everybody else. Everyone can hear your conversation. So they give her, you don't order here at Cafe Sport. They look at you, they judge you, and they order for you. There's two places like this, a French and an Italian spot in San Francisco. They order her an eggplant parmesan dish, small, quaint, clean, fits on the table. This guy didn't like me at all. He puts on my side of the table a giant bed of spaghetti, a mountain of marinara sauce, a huge uncracked lobster, a votive with a candle, a plate and boiling butter, and an oddly cut lemon wedge and a cracker. I don't know what I'm gonna do. I've never cracked a lobster in my life. I'm wearing an only white shirt. I'm thinking if I get anything on here, she's gonna think I'm a slob and this will be over. I take the cracker, I see the positive affirmations I use in the psych ward. Kevin, I believe in you. Kevin, you can do this. Kevin, go. I put the, literally, I put the cracker on the tail. I crack marinara sauce all over my only good white shirt. It was like Captain America's shield on a shirt. This wasn't coming off with water. I think she thinks I'm a slob. She thinks, what a slob. She told me this later. and. That, at, that, at that immediate moment, my brain tried to fix everything and goes, Kevin, do something classy now. And I basically had an inner dialogue with myself, like, what does that even mean? Figure it out, man. And I went and I grabbed the lemon wedge. I picked it up. It was very weirdly cut. And I looked at Margaret's eyes. I started to shake. I looked at the lobster. I looked at my hand and I went like that. And you threw your fist out. No, I crushed the lemon in right? my hands and I passed my plate, and I watched a stream of lemon juice fly across this tiny, stupid table into her left eye. Oh, it was like man. It was like a fire hose. Mascara's running down all her face, oh, she's crying. Oh, man. And that's when the lady next to us decides she's gonna you know, get involved. And she basically had this very raspy voice. She goes, Miss, do we need to call someone? And I turned to this lady, and I was petrified. I said, Miss, it's a date, it's going south, they're not helping, thank you. And, and, oh, and no. Margaret is looking at me, and just tears flowing down one of her, the side of her face, mascara's flowing down her face, she's wiping it off. And I said to myself, Kevin, do something classier now. Because it worked the first time. Oh, no. And I go and I, I go for the plate of boiling butter to put the boiling butter in the tiny hole I'd made with that crack in the lobster. I tip the plate of boiling butter, and two droplets fly across the table between her blouse, onto her chest, they burn her. Oh she my screams God. bloody murder. The entire restaurant stops cold. And then I hear her say the, the only two words you never want to hear in a first date in the first five minutes when you haven't even eaten your food. Check, please. She pays. We leave. We haven't even eaten. She walks a mile in front of me like she doesn't know me. We get to the apartment. She sees the bag. She turns around and says, Kevin, we're going to the roof. I said, Margaret, are you going to throw me off? She said, no, Kevin, come on. We get in this 1920s elevator. We go up to the roof, two yoga mats laid out, and a box garden. I said, what are we doing here? 
She turned to me laying down and said, Kevin, if all we do right now is stare at that full moon, ain't nothing else can go wrong. And I knew. I'm a winner. <laughs> I won the game. And this is the most beautiful woman I've ever met, inside and out, and I'll be with her for the rest of my life. Now, I, I told her that I loved her on our second date. And I'll never forget it. We're driving to uh, see Most Def in concert. He didn't show up. And, and, and we're driving there, and she's at 10 and 2 on the, on the steering wheel. And I turned her, and I, I was bursting. It seems I had to tell her. I said, Margaret, I have to tell you something right now. And she goes, what, Kevin, what? I said, Margaret, I, I, just, I feel this thing. I feel, I feel I can't, I can't. I have to. She goes, what, Kevin? I said, Margaret, I love you. And she goes like this. Um, thank you. But now we're 11 years married, and she's the best thing that ever happened to me. And I always knew she would be. And where does this take the both of you? Because I know that she's helping you as you go around and tell your story and explain to people what it's like to feel these things and to get us all to understand so that we can all reach out and help. How did the two of you decide to align yourself and go off in this direction? Well, she was the one that pulled me out of an immeasurable painful space, who gave me hope for the future, reinvigorated my entire life, and makes me want to be a better man, and makes me want to help more people. You know, I've been speaking for a while, and, 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 and then she took it to the next level. She became my manager, not just my wife, and, and we have a, a symbiotic relationship in that way. We, we know how that works, and, and she does a great job getting me around the world to share a story that helps people, and she saw the value in that and became this rock, you know, uh, uh, that I could lean on whenever I was falling apart at the seams. And then she ended up, you know, joining the business and then, and then running the show. And, and really, you know, um, we have this great relationship. I mean, at our wedding 11 years ago in June, the first, the, the, one of the groomsmen got up and said, you know, uh, Kevin and Margaret have the healthiest relationship I've ever known because they're 100% honest with each other about whatever they're going through, no matter what. And I think when you can have rigorous honesty with the one you love the most, you can defeat any pain that might exist in that relationship, because, certainly because of my mental struggles. I fall apart all the time, Cal. I'm not a rock. I'm a pebble. And I, I flow down streams of consciousness whenever I'm in pain, and, I've, and, I, and I lose myself often. And she finds me. I don't tell that story about you know our love life to to brag. I tell it because it's my favorite story, and and it just goes to show you one heck of a journey from hell to hope. If if one can find hope, one can have a purpose, and if one can have a purpose, we can always stay here. My purpose is to be a good husband to my wife, a good son to my family. And my purpose is to travel the world telling a story that changes lives forever. And you have changed lives forever because you're speaking, your book, the 
movies and film work that you've done has changed minds, raised money, and fairly soon, nobody will be able to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge and die. How did that happen? So after I did what I did, the film The Bridge came out in 2006 by Eric Steele, a, a film that showed 24 deaths off the Golden Gate Bridge in real time. And that film was controversial, but the director was trying to say, we've got this bridge, the brightest, most visible bridge in the world where one person is dying every seven to 10 days and nobody's doing anything about it. So he made a film about it and he showed the devastating thing that's being caused there. And he interviewed the families that were left behind. And he interviewed me and my father for 10 minutes in that film, which ended up becoming the most popular part of the film. They made it, it became its own separate video. And uh, people related to the story. And then I began to talk all around the world about the story. And, um, and my dad founded the Bridge Rail Foundation with Paul Muller and Dave Hall. Dave Hall had lost his daughter to the bridge in the turn of the first century. And Paul Muller was an activist. And they got together and founded the Bridge Rail Foundation, whose sole purpose was to raise a net rail at the Golden Gate Bridge to stop the suicides. My father begged the bridge district, who owns and runs the bridge privately, the only privately owned bridge in the country. My father begs the, the directorate to close the walkway until the, the, the net or rail was built. They refused year after year. When we went to fight, we, we fought for 10 years to raise this net at the Golden Gate Bridge. Subsequently, there had been eight other fights to raise a net or rail. They'd all failed over the last 80 years. The first fight happened in 1939, two years after, it was in, 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 two years after the erection of the bridge. They, the, the, the police department that patrolled the bridge fought for the rails to go up. When it was first built, uh, Joseph Strauss, the builder, was 4'11". He wanted to see over the rail. It was initially supposed to be 14 feet tall. No one was ever supposed to scale that bridge. But Joseph Strauss' vanity led him to create a place that had one death every seven to 10 days for 40 years, 50 years now, right? So my father fought for it. We go to these bridge district meetings every month, the whole team, everybody who's fighting for it, all the mental health organizations were all there, led by Bridge Rail. And, and um, my father is giving his three minutes allotted testimony why they should close the walkway until it happens. And a woman named Leah Shasham, the bicycle coalitionist, who I'm glad to name, stood up and said, Patrick, more people die of sedentary lifestyles than die of suicide. I'm sorry, more people die of laziness than die of suicide. Are you serious? And my father looked at her and said, Leah, I like ice cream. Do you know how to roller skate? And she goes, that's preposterous. And he said, then so are you. And it was on the nightly news. It was a big clip on the news that night. It was, you know, it was ridiculous. Like more people die that, are you kidding me? Then I got up and did my three minutes lot of testimony. And I said, when a young toddler boy fell through the cracks of the bridge to his death between the walkway and the traffic, you filled that gap in three weeks with no public comment, no need for an environmental or physical study. You just did it because it was the right thing to do. Why won't you do it for us? And she said, she, this lady, this, another lady stood up and said, because young man, that child was innocent. Wow. That's what we fought against for 10 years. And for 10 years, we dwindled their numbers down from 16 to zero against us, 16 to one, 15 to one, 14 to two. We got 10 years later to 16 to one for us. And the only holdout was the president of the board, Johnny Moylan, who used to work with Uncle Kevin.
in the Teamsters, who my father knew. And then Johnny Moylan lost his nephew and grandnephew to the Golden Gate Bridge. And he changed his vote. It passed unanimously in June of that year. And as of 2021, not one more gorgeous soul will be lost to the Golden Gate Bridge. And it will become the beacon it was meant to be for prevention and means restrictions all over the world. And that's a beautiful thing. Anyone who wishes to help Kevin on his quest to aid those with mental health issues can reach out to him and his wife, Margaret, at the Kevin and Margaret Hines Foundation. That's K.M. Hines, H-I-N-E-S, foundation.org. You can also look for his book, Cracked, Not Broken, and get further information about his story at kevinhinesstory.com, Kevin, H-I-N-E-S, story, S-T-O-R-Y, dot com. Takeaway here is simple. Whatever your difficulties, never count yourself out. Never, never, never. See you next week.